is Morgan Campbell. I am, uh, how would I describe my current job here at the Toronto Star? It's Friday, December 6th. I work in the sports department at the Toronto Star. I'm the author of Morgan Campbell's Sports Prism at the Toronto Star. So what we do is use sports as a lens to look at other big issues or look through those other big issues and see how they affect sport, whether it's sports and race, sports and business, sports in the economy, sports and gender, et cetera, et cetera, uh, any number of off-the-field issues. Um, but the writing often leads me into the types of things we're going to wind up discussing today. Awesome. Well, listen, Morgan, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it today. Anytime. So let's chat about basketball. So uh, we, we know now that there's a, a bunch of uh, Canadian players, some of the best players, if not all of the best players in Canada, um, seem to want to uh, play for Team Canada in the upcoming uh, uh trials and, and tryouts for uh for for the olympics yes um but i guess as this was all happening um <laughs> since Xero sort of uh sparked a discussion that that uh, that I, I i had with you and that i had with a a number of friends yes and, and and so what he said i think it was november 24th or late november tweeted out uh you know Va- uh vassal pospisil and denis chapo uh and the rest of the Canadian tennis team had a great showing um, at, a, at a tournament, at the Davis Cup tournament. And he tweeted out, top flight Canadian athletes have turned their back on Canada this year. And the tennis players haven't. Kudos to them. Something along those lines. Um, and you tweeted, you sort of tweeted back, really? They actually kind of made some, uh, some good money as well. Um, <laughs> But when I when I also saw that, I also it sort of sparked in my mind, and I remembered. You know what? It seems that Canadian basketball players always get the short end of the stick when it comes to representing their country and what others think of them. Yes. Um, and so, what are what are your thoughts on why basketball players specifically get looked at differently than other Canadian athletes who may choose for a variety of reasons not to try out or play for Team Canada? Uh. Yeah, well, two things to keep in mind about Canadian NBA players and American NBA players who constantly are being shamed as unpatriotic when they don't uh, jump into the World Cup. Uh, A few things to keep in mind. One, and this is something that you can't ever forget, the the overwhelming majority of Canadian NBA players and the overwhelming majority of American NBA players are black. Um, And as much as Canadians, like... Canadians pretend not to be racist, and this is part of the, the national identity uh, and what Canada promotes about Canada is that it's not as racist as the United States. But in most cases, in so many places in Canada, racism just hasn't been put to the test like it's being put to the test now. And we're having, and we'll get to this later, like these constant reckonings on hockey and race and racism mm. that one big part of the population seems really surprised by. Even though, again, if you'd listen to black NHL players talk for the last 25, 30 years, they'd have told you exactly what was happening. But I digress. The point is, uh, Canadians, we like to also import a lot of a lot of the racism that Canadians accuse Americans of. Canadians also import, like any other uh, cultural phenomenon from the U.S., and like to have their own Canadian version of it, right? Like, my family, we're from Chicago. And go to Chicago, we go to Garrett's Popcorn. And you get the, the popcorn. It's like a mix of cheese, popcorn, and caramel popcorn together. This is something that's very specific to Chicago. And then mm-hmm. here comes pre- here's President's Choice now, all these years later, selling Chicago mix. Like, they made it up, right? This is what we yeah. like to do. 
So what Canadians like to do now is is import this stereotype that somehow uh, black people aren't as patriotic as white people. Um, and that is the subtext to a lot of this criticism of NBA players who don't volunteer their summer to play in the World Cup. So that's a big part of it. And then the other and then but and then the other elements of this thing are like so obvious that they don't even bear mentioning it. If people weren't so wrapped up in trying to shame these black athletes for their perceived lack of patriotism, it would be right there in front of you. Uh, the, the first one, which I mentioned uh, in the Twitter thread, was the money, right? The Davis Cup winning yeah. team gets... The, in the Davis Cup, they're playing for 23 million euros. 23 that's a, million euros! That's a lot of money. If, they play, if, the, if the Davis Cup now said, well, we're suspending prize money, but we want all you guys to play for free then you'd get a lot less turnout at the Davis Cup, especially mm. among like the top flight professionals who get paid to play tennis. And yeah. what you would see is the second and third tier people who need, uh, who might need a Davis Cup win to get a sponsor or something like that, they'd all of a sudden become really interested in, in the Davis Cup. And all of a sudden these Davis Cup coaches and captains would be interested in these second and third tier players because the Shapovalovs of the world would say, well, I got a Nike deal. I get paid to get up off my couch and play tennis. So I'm not going to play for free, even if it is for my country. I have a schedule. Free yeah. tennis is not in my schedule. So that's the first thing. Um, this is the second thing, and so when you talk, when you compare that to the World Cup of basketball, like how much are these players, players getting paid for the World Cup of basketball? Like they're paid by their primary employer. Um, now, if the World Cup of basketball, if Basketball Canada says, okay, well, each of you guys is getting, I don't know, three million dollars to play in the world cup then you get a bunch of people in the world cup but the point is these guys are professional basketball players um and it's not fair to compare them to professional dentist players when it's a completely different circumstance because how do you unlink the paycheck from the patriotism as a perceived motive for these people playing for their country right mm-hmm. um that's one thing uh, so we have the racism and how overwhelmingly white media members love to shame black American and black Canadian athletes as something other than patriotic. And again, that's a fallacy. Two, we have the money. Um, three, we have like just the, the, the schedule of the sport, right? As mm-hmm. NBA, we're, we're, in the, we're in the era now of, of, of load management in the NBA, where players who play on teams that have a reasonable belief early in the season that they're going to go deep into the uh, postseason, they manage their load throughout the season. Like you can only budget as a human being um, so much high intensity physical activity from year to year, right? So if you're an M- if you're a really good NBA player, you haven't budgeted the extra time to go play to go play send spend six seven weeks at the World Cup yeah. when you're already playing deep into the playoffs, right? You haven't budgeted that time. Whereas tennis players, load management is built into tennis. Right? These top players, they don't play in every single tournament that's out there. Right? They play in the tournaments yeah, right. that make sense for them and that allow them to peak for the four majors. Um, and so if at the outset of the year, you decide that you're going to build the Davis Cup into your schedule uh, because you love your country, but also because you can get a piece of 23 million euros, then you can yep. do that from the beginning of the season. You can build that schedule. Basketball players have a lot less uh, influence over their own schedule. So guys take days off throughout the year, like Kawhi Leonard did. Um, yeah. But for, for, for Basketball Canada to come in uh, at the end of a season and say, hey, I know you're beat up from a long season and have a short window to recover and prepare for your next season, but 
come play in the World Cup. That doesn't work with a lot of people's schedules. A lot of people haven't budgeted. If you're really good and 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 you're a high usage player that plays deep into the playoffs, you don't you haven't budgeted that extra time. And if you're not a good player, you you, you don't think your country's going to call you. I'm the 50th best player in this country. Why would they call me? All of a sudden yeah. they call me. I'm a fringe NBA player. Well. It's, I might not be in shape that time of year. I might still be building up to, to training camp. And so the point is, like, tennis players have so much more control over their schedule and have the ability to schedule uh, events like the Davis Cup into their yearly calendar. And NBA players don't have that flexibility, so you cannot judge them the same way. Hmm. And to this point, people could say, well, what about soccer? Right? Yeah. What about soccer? Well, what about soccer? Because <laughs> What's the fundamental difference between every major soccer league in the world and the NBA in terms of their relationship with the global body, the global governing body? I don't know. Think about this, like Major League Soccer, EPL, Scotland, Bundesliga, whatever. At some level, all the, they're all members of FIFA. They're all accountable to FIFA. Oh, yeah, they right. sort of build around the World Cup, right? Yes, whereas the NBA yeah. does what the NBA does. NBA is not accountable to, to FIBA. They don't work together on yeah. scheduling. And so, to me, the onus is not on the players um, to rearrange their schedules or, or jeopardize their primary employment to go play in the World Cup of Basketball. Because, and honestly, like nobody cares about the World Cup of Basketball is the other thing in North America. <laughs> Sure. Right? It's not the World Cup of soccer. Like everybody who plays soccer dreams of playing in the World Cup. Like yeah. North Americans don't dream of playing in the World Cup of soccer. They dream of playing in the NBA. Now, Spain, Croatia, wherever, like those guys might all grow up playing, dreaming of playing in the World Cup of basketball, but that's them. That's not yeah. us. Yeah. And so to me, if you want more Canadian NBA players and more American NBA players playing in the World Cup of basketball, then the onus is on Basketball Canada or USA Basketball to integrate themselves um, at the youth level and socialize players to prioritize those events. Because North American players are not socialized to prioritize the World Cup of Basketball. They're socialized to prioritize getting scholarships and getting to the NBA. And they will play like these international tournaments like RJ Barrett played in the U U19 uh, World Championships that year. And uh, I think Canada won or got a silver medal. But like, to North Americans, those are just all things you do on the way to getting a scholarship or on the way to getting to the NBA. These are all just kind of parts of your apprenticeship. Then after that, like you, the, the NBA is the goal. World Cup of Basketball is like something you get to if you have time. So yeah. if Canadians want more Canadian NBA players to play in the World Cup of Basketball as opposed to the Olympics, because the Olympics is a big deal. World Cup of Basketball to a lot of North Americans still isn't a big deal. But if you want people to prioritize the World Cup of Basketball, that's on Basketball Canada. That's on USA Basketball to make themselves part of young players' lives uh, from a much younger stage um, and get them thinking about the World Cup of Basketball and get them to prioritize that event. Get them to make that a goal the same way NBA All-Star is a goal. That's the only way to do it. You can't get it on the back end when, like, from the time a guy is six, seven years old or whatever, when he starts playing – his goal is the NBA. And so once he reaches the NBA, his, all his other goals are NBA goals for the most part. And then to tell a 25, 30 year old man all of a sudden to care about some event that was never on his radar for his whole life, like why would he do that? So, mm. so it's, it's, it's not a question of whether or not the players are patriotic. It's a question of whether or not North American players are socialized to care about the World Cup of basketball. And up until yeah. now they haven't, and I don't blame people for that. I don't blame 
the players for that. This is just something that these national sport governing bodies uh, have to take up, that they have to prioritize. That and, makes sense, yeah. Because even when you take a look at hockey as an example, right? Yeah, Canadian kids grow up dreaming to play for, you know, or play in the NHL. Yes. But there's also a high importance placed on Canadians winning every single hockey tournament that that there is, whether it's right. the juniors, the worlds, before when they had the Canada Cup, the Olympics, like we must win. So there's an importance that, that I guess comes down from Hockey Canada to all the players. Absolutely. But also like the world hockey championships that they have every year. That is um, in the springtime. And a lot of good Canadian players can't play because it overlaps with the playoffs. And then other players, I don't know if they play every year just because even if my team gets eliminated from the playoffs, like physically I might not be able or willing to take on another challenge like that. Hmm. Um, so the World Cup of basketball is much more like the World Hockey Ch- It's more like the World Hockey Championship than it is like the World Cup of soccer. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, that's right. But it's, I guess, drawing that parallel is too hard, and it's much easier to shame uh, a group of athletes that's overwhelmingly black for allegedly lacking patriotism. Like that's the easy knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. Um, but it's not necessarily. That's 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 like saying there's no climate change because it's snowing outside. Like, <laughs> it's it's the easy observation to make. It's a long way from the correct one. It's it's almost like you know it's easier for me to just to put a tweet down than it is to you know write a, a, a I don't know a five thousand word essay on yeah or just to really, <laughs> or or just to devote a few minutes to thinking about how these sports are the same and how they're different and yeah. why one group of people might react one way and another group of people might react another way but again these tennis players had twenty three million reasons that's true in euros. <laughs> That I would do for twenty three million euros uh, that I wouldn't do for free. Yeah, like I would, um, I would write for the I would write for the National Post for twenty three million euros. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so there is a price. There is a price. Um, Morgan, let, let's let's talk about one of your more recent, if not your most recent, article um, in the Toronto Star. Um, where you spoke about black NHL players uh, and and their experience with racism. And it's really interesting because you go back 20 years. um, (laughs) 19 years. That's right, 19 years, 19 years. Um, You talk about your experience in a scrum, speaking with Anson Carter, and sort of how other people perceived your conversation uh, to be, I don't necessarily want you to sort of read your article verbatim, but Ooh, oh wait, can I? Let's plug. One, they can go read the article, or two, that's get, right, yeah, to, to to get a sense of how this happened and 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 how I wound up dealing with the troll who we're about to talk about. They can yes. watch my TEDx talk. <laughs> oh, oh, so this is on both of these. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's my the TEDx talk is the pinned tweet on my Twitter page. So have fun, guys. There you go. So Toronto started to read about the article um, and at Morgan P. Campbell uh, to go check out the pinned tweet and your, and your TEDx talk. Um, but let, let me ask you, because I, I don't, unless I sort of missed it or the, the nuance of it in the article, uh, and it's been a while since I've watched your TEDx talk, but out, outside of, uh, so t- tell me about this reporter and what he said or she said uh, about. It was, he. It was very much he. a he. 
Okay, so tell me about that. Like, what did he write about that interaction between you and Anson Carter? Um, long story short, uh, yeah, it was this scrum that had formed around Anson Carter. This is yeah, this is in the year two thousand in the NBA. Sorry, the Edmonton Oilers had a bunch of black players on their team, so this was like kind of newsworthy because they had a bunch of players, black players already, and then they signed a couple more. So they had like five black players on one NHL team, which never happens. So they come into Toronto, and I just happened to be on the hockey beat that day because a coworker was sick. So I'm out there interviewing a bunch of the players about what it's like to be on this team with so many black players, how the other, you know, how they're perceived around the league, what their experiences are like coming up. And I'm asking Anson Carter about this stuff, and he's answering all the questions about race and racism in hockey and he's like yeah you know what racism it's a factor in everyday life so of course it's a factor on my job it's a factor on anyone's job etc cetera, etc cetera. he's not running from these questions yeah um so i go write the story and then uh i'll give you guys because the column is about something else so i'll give you guys the behind That's the right. scenes yeah. so <laughs> i get to work the next day and the sports editor's like hey you should check out the national post uh their story about anton carter so I go read the story and like the, the, the old, older white guy columnist who's like a middle-aged white guy, you know, as his picture, you know, runs with the story. So I recognized him from the day before. Yeah. And uh, there's a line in the story where he says, pressed by a minority reporter to comment on racism in the NHL, Carter said simply, I'm not a politician, I'm a hockey player. Except that Anton Carter did not say that in that context. Anson Carter, one, was not pressed, right? I did not press him. He, we were having a back and forth. He was very comfortable talking about it. Because like, at this point in his career, by the time you're a black player who has reached the NHL, you've talked about race a trillion times. So this is not, yeah. you know, it, this, this, this was not off-putting to him. And then, um, yeah, so he was not pressed. I just asked. And then when he said, I'm not a politician, I'm a hockey player, that was not... That was not in response to me just asking generally about racism and yeah. hockey. This was me asking specifically, do people try to force agendas on you and get and get to and people do, do people try to portray you as something you're not and force agendas onto you because you're this high profile black person in a mostly white sport? Yeah. And he says to me, yeah, people try to do that, but I don't take that on because I'm not a politician. I'm a hockey player. Yeah. So now here comes a columnist doing the exact same thing that I asked Anton Carter if people do, which is portray him as something he's not. So this yeah. columnist had in his mind to portray Anton Carter as the good black guy who does not uh, dabble in racial issues, who does not concern himself with that. No, he stays um, in his lane and plays hockey. He stays in his lane. He's, <laughs> he's happy. He's humble and happy to be here. All of this stuff. So this is how he wanted to portray Anson Carter. So that was how he portrayed Anson Carter. Even though if he had just bothered to listen to Anson Carter, he would have got a completely different picture of Anson Carter. And a much yeah. truer picture of Anson Carter. But he had the picture of Anson Carter he wanted to paint. And that was what he did. Um, so, so it's funny. I, I, as I read this, and like my colleagues are reading this, and know this guy's talking about me. Uh, the first thing, one, one of my colleagues, Mark Zolinski, the first thing he said is, you know what? Well, when you see that guy, you just punch him in the face. <laughs> um, I didn't punch him in the face. I, I, I did wind up putting him in his place. You guys can check out the TEDx talk to figure out to learn how I did that. Um, All right. And I haven't spoken to the man since then. He's still around. He's still doing sports. Yeah, I think so. 
Okay. <laughs> oh, man. This is part of the uh, point, right? Is that like, here I am, this 23-year-old at the time intern, like just struggling to get a, scuffling to get a foothold in this industry, right? Yeah, yeah. And these are the people with the high-profile, high-paid positions, people who think like that, who act like that, who operate like that. Um, and I don't know quite how much the industry has changed. Uh, there's certainly more room and maybe not as many big platforms because newsrooms are shrinking, but more platforms for people with different backgrounds, different skills, different cultural capital um, to get published and kind of challenge uh, guys like that. Wow. And sort of this all comes to light um, and it seems things have been snowballing since uh, uh, I was going to say CBC, but really it was Rogers that uh, fired Don Cherry. Yes. Uh, um, so you had that. You had the Leafs uh, firing their head coach, and then story like I was shocked as heck about uh, all the stories that came out uh, from that. And then you have uh, Akeem uh, Aliu. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, um, and his experience with uh, his former coach. Um, Bill Peters, what sort of what? And so what I'm curious about is 19 years ago, you're having this conversation with Anson Carter and it's, it's taken 19 years for there to be now a conversation. Yes. About, about racism in the NHL. Why has it, it taken, why has it taken so long? Well, I'm, I, and part of it is, I don't know. And this is the point I make in the column. Like, uh, to a large extent, you got to ask my white colleagues, the white decision makers in this business, um, oh. who, again, like the guy who stood next to me at the Anson Carter scrum and heard Anson Carter uh, answer questions and speak very honestly about racism in hockey and, just decide to, and then just decide to write a completely different story. And then treat me like I was a weirdo for just writing about what the guy spoke about. And then yeah. talking to the guy's teammates and they're telling different versions of the same story. Because what's amazing is that for all these people who claim to be surprised that there's racism in hockey, everybody now, right now, knows where to find a, a retired black NHL player or a current black NHL player and get a story about racism in hockey. Right? All these guys have been here this whole time. Yeah, with these same experiences have been willing to talk about them, and yet now this is all brand new. And, and but like props to Akeem Aliu because if he didn't uh, go on that little Twitter rant, I shouldn't call it a rant because that nope. kind of um, minimizes what it was because he's he was very honest about what happened to him uh, yeah. in, in in Rockford, and and if he didn't do that, I don't know that we're here having this conversation. But again, yeah, I just feel here. like. We could have had these conversations a long time ago, but as I argue in the column, just this industry, like the Canadian sports writing industry, is, huh. has just been like so white and so male and so straight for so long that they weren't either weren't equipped or weren't willing or both uh, to, to, to facilitate and foster and push these conversations. But they're more than willing to facilitate and foster and push a conversation about how Anton Carter doesn't want to deal with racism. And this is the yeah. business. Interesting, um, but and but this is a big problem with the way this business is built, right? Because because the other thing is like, um, there are too many 
like the audience is too diverse and there and there are also too many people like with too much cultural capital to sneak stories like that past them anymore in a mainstream publication huh. like a public you know unless unless you're writing for the the the, the sports the fox news is sports vertical yeah right where you just know all your 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 readers are like and I don't know that Fox News even has a sports article, just hy- hypothetically, right? But if you're writing yeah. for the Star, or even for the Globe and Mail, you know you're writing for like a f- a fairly diverse, especially at the Star, but also fairly bright audience. Yeah. So you can't snowball people like that anymore, right? Yeah. And when it comes to stories about race, diversity, gender, uh, on down the line, and especially as they intersect with sports, like you cannot take this ham-handed approach. Um, and especially now because players have social media, if I interview you and you say and you say to me ABC and then I wrote that you said XYZ, I can tweet out the next day that was not what I said. That is not the context in which I said it. Yeah, and there'll be like dozens of people with their cell phones that have recorded it. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So like yeah. if you're if, if you're a, if you're a hack, you don't have the, well, you shouldn't theoretically have the same leeway that you had before. Mm-hmm. I mean, things work out differently in practice, but like in theory, you shouldn't have that same leeway if you're if you're going to be a a quote distorting hack. Yeah. Tell me how how does this how did it impact you? So you know you're you're a young uh, reporter just coming into the business. How did this impact you personally and you professionally? Um. Well. Being, I have I've never played organized hockey, uh-huh. uh, but like the stories that are coming out just sound really similar to the ones hmm. to to the experiences I've had as a black person in this industry in this country. So to a certain extent, like, yeah. like and you know this being a person of color, when you're a person of color in 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 a country or a city or an industry that's mostly white, you just understand that you're going to ha- you're going to put up with some racism. You don't always know when mm. it's going to happen. And it doesn't yeah. stop you from being offended or whatever when it does happen, but you also know that it's going to happen. This is a question yeah. of who is it a microaggression or a macroaggression, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Is it the outright affixing of a glass ceiling over your head because they'd rather see the white people get ahead or whatever. But you know, one way or the other it's going to happen. So for me in that yeah. instance, well, that was when it happened. So like to me, like it didn't derail me or diminish my desire to succeed in this industry. It was just something I knew I was going to have to put up with. Yeah. Um, okay. And so not put up with, like experience, encounter. Because, yeah, I didn't put up with it. Like I said, I got back at the guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like put up with isn't the word. But I knew I'd have to uh, yeah. encounter it, overcome it is, 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 is more the thing. Um, and so do I wish the industry was different? Yes. Uh, can I change minds in the industry? Maybe. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, and again, because there's so much more interaction with audiences now. Um, sure. I'm not out to really change minds in that sense. I'm just out to tell the best story possible. And mm-hmm. if you're open to reading the best story possible, cool. And if that changes how you look at something, perfect. But I'm also not, I'm not, I'm not, 
I'm not enough of a narcissist to think that I can write the story or the series of stories that's going to end racism, right? Great black writers have been devoted entire careers. Yeah. Like if, if James Baldwin couldn't stop white people from being racist, if Ralph Ellison couldn't stop white people from being racist, Morgan Campbell at the Toronto Star is not going to stop white people. It's not going to end racism with a bunch of sports stories, no matter how good they are. But at the same time, yeah, what we've been able to do in the last few years, again, especially in the social media era where we can interact with the audience, is that like you write these stories and you're able to find the audience with which those stories really resonate. Yeah. And make the case to your bosses where 15, 20 years ago, you didn't quite have an idea of how deeply engaged the audience was. You just kind of, especially in the strictly print era, you know, you printed these stories. And that's what it was. And you just kind of had to, and all everything you wrote was based on what you were telling the audience what they wanted. Um, but story, like the, you know, the reaction I've gotten from this column here, or the stuff I've written about Kaepernick, like there is... Even if it's not a huge audience, it's a deeply engaged audience for those types of stories. Um, you know, and again, uh, sometimes you get the person that says, hey, I never thought of it that way. This is giving me a new way to think of this, which, you know, is a big part of your yeah. goal as, as, as an opinion writer. But at the same time, again, I'm I, like, I don't think I'm going to write the story that makes uh, Jeff Sessions or Donald Trump disavow racism. You know what I mean? Or one of their supporters. That's just not what's good. <laughs> so I don't make that my goal, right? I'm, I'm not out here trying to bridge gaps or meet, yeah. meet, meet bits in the middle or anything like that. Um, but I do know that there is a fairly large and deeply engaged audience that is interested in that type of story and can get something from that type of story and likes to see that type of story and that point of view represented in a mainstream yeah. outlet. What, what is, is what's happening with Colin Kaepernick and, and the NFL? It, it seems that there's a, a battle that the NFL seems to want to participate in, but it is not winning, um, at least from where I stand. It's like they, they're trying to place themselves in a position where the, the general public can finally look at them and say, okay, yeah, NFL is done right. Um, and, and so you you had this sort of practice that the NFL put together and invited Colin Kaepernick out to you know do do a tryout that all the NFL teams were going to be there, and Colin Kaepernick sort of turns it on its head and says, "No, we're going to do it this way." Um, what are your thoughts on the way both the NHL and, and Colin have have handled all of this? Uh, yeah, from the NFL standpoint, like it 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 just felt like a publicity stunt for as much as critics have have accused Colin Kaepernick of turning this tryout into a publicity stunt it was a publicity stunt from Jump Street only because one like league organized tryouts like they don't really exist outside the NFL scouting combine every February and March um and so any like every team brings in guys on Tuesdays free agents works them out and you know, sees what they're about. So if teams were, were interested in, like, were interested in a good faith look at Colin Kaepernick, anyone could have called his agent at any time. Um, yeah. Also, and, and this is where you start to understand that even if there is not explicit collusion, like 
even if every general manager in the league is not like on a group text saying, hey, guys, let's make sure we don't uh, give Colin Kaepernick a tryout. If I don't try him out, you don't try him out. Yeah. Um, there's still like this gentleman's agreement, right? That's what kept black players out of Major League Baseball for so long. There's no written policy. It's just a gentleman's agreement. And everyone knew not to do it. And so they didn't yeah. do it. Just think about this. Like, the, 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 there aren't a lot of people in the world who can play in the NFL. No. Right? There's 30, 32 teams, 53 people on the active roster, 10 or 12 on the uh, practice roster. So we're talking about fewer than 2,000 people. Um, and then there's, like, all these injuries. And so anyone who is, like, anywhere near good enough, they want to know who you are, where you are. And if they can get you into a uniform on short notice, because in any given season, a bunch of people are going to get their bodies mangled because that's what happened. And then at the yeah. quarterback position, it's even more acute because there's 96 NFL quarterbacks, right? Say three on each team. And then how many people like are good enough to really manage a team? Like in a game situation, there's maybe 60. Um, so if you hear a guy might be good enough, like you're going to go try the guy out. Like these you NFL want teams, on your team. Yeah, like, listen, if I'm on Instagram, I mean, right now, and I'm 43 years old, and I post a video of myself running a 40-yard dash, and this 40-yard, like, you could be timing it, right? And you say, hey, Instagram, I just, I just timed Morgan Campbell, 43-year-old Morgan Campbell, in 4.29 seconds in the 40-yard dash. Post it on Instagram, tag the NFL, tag my favorite team. One of them's going to call me and offer me a tryout. Or at least bring me down and see what I can do. I'm 43 years old. You see what I'm saying? Like Michael Lewis, he, yeah, was, a yeah. punt, he was a punt returner for the uh, New Orleans Saints. Like he was, he was, he was, he was, uh, he used to drive a beer delivery truck, right? Around New Orleans and southern, southern Mississippi. He, he had kegs of beer in this truck. He used to drive them from the brewery to the different <laughs> bars, right? But he was out someplace and there was like a free agent camp and he ran a really fast 40. They're like, we don't know who you are, what you did, but you're fast. Uh, we're going to give you a chance. So this is the, this is the environment the, the, the NFL operates in. So now, here you have Colin Kaepernick, who is a proven NFL quarterback. And the last time we saw him, um, he played really well that final season in San Francisco. Also, he's like a run-pass threat of the type that is like really in vogue in the NFL right now. Mm-hmm. Like Lamar Jackson is like the most extreme version of it, um, but like, and and obviously like no one else is going to come in and be Lamar Jackson, but like he is of that type, right? So he's a guy that should be able to play, or at least pique a team's curiosity about if he can play. Yet nothing. So then here comes the league, you know, ten months, eight months after settling this lawsuit out of court. Um, with this centralized tryout, but that comes with a list of stipulations that they want Colin Kaepernick to sign off on. And all this seems like is just a way to, to, to yeah. allow the league and its teams to wriggle out from further legal liability if they continue uh, to uphold this gentleman's agreement that seems to be keeping Kaepernick out of the league. So Kaepernick rightfully said, well, no, I'm not going to sign these uh stipulations i'm not going to sign these waivers it's too restrictive if you guys want to see me play come on up to this other high school i'll throw the ball around all day and that's that you can just decide for yourselves yeah which is, which is what he did and the interesting part is yeah. that some of the guys he was throwing to are now getting calls from nfl teams that colin kaepernick is not getting calls from nfl teams ha huh. huh. 
Wow. But again, and as I wrote in the star the other week, like the that, is, that, that, that is crazy. Do you, do you think he'll ever play in the NFL again? No. Mm-mm. No. Huh. No, 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 no. Because, because again, like that last tryout from the NFL's perspective was not about uh, giving him a good faith level playing field tryout and a chance to audition for all these NFL teams. It was just about getting him to jump through some hoops uh, and getting his signature on these pieces of paper that uh, that that shield the NFL from any legal responsibility for keeping this man out of this job, out of this job that he's uniquely qualified for. Um, because, and this is what I wrote in the Star the other week, and this is what really confounds like the NFL, is that there's so there's so many people who want those jobs, but so many people who are actually qualified for them. Like the NFL is used to calling these shots and like dangling, you know, a little bit of hope in front of someone, you know, just for a shot at a non-guaranteed contract in a sport that's, that, that, that literally can cripple you but because there's some glory yeah. associated with it and some money. Like they're used to getting people to dance to their tune and controlling people with either with money or just the prospect of some money. So here comes Colin Kaepernick. Like he's not making NFL money doing what he's doing, but he's making very good money, right? He's got money coming in from Nike. He makes sure. fifty yeah. to a hundred thousand dollars for every speaking engagement, right? So in February alone, Black History Month, he'll he'll make enough money to last two years in one month, right? So he's living well. Sure. So he's not making NFL money, but he's making enough money that he that he can say to himself, "Is what they're offering me worth this embarrassment? This embarrassment? This humiliation?" Is it worth me capitulating yeah. when there are other things I could be doing with my yeah. time? And so, True. yeah, I would really like to play in the NFL, but I don't have to debase myself for a chance at a job. I'm not, and then I don't know that he would put himself above other people. He's like, I'm, just, I'm not like the rest of these guys that you bring in and are desperate for just a sniff at the NFL, um, and they will sign any type of restrictive, restrictive waiver um, and, 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 and open themselves to any type of danger just for, just for a chance. Colin Kaepernick's chance, had, yeah. yeah, he's had more than a sniff. He knows what he's good enough to do, and but he also knows that he doesn't need this to keep the bills paid. And so this is what the NFL is struggling with because they're just used to controlling people uh, with money or with the prospect of some money. And so here comes Colin Kaepernick. He's like, well, you're not going to control me. So now people don't know how to react because this tactic usually works. I'm going to show you some money, and you're going to bend the knee. And Kaepernick says, hey, that's nice money. <laughs> I have money. I'm also smart enough to know that none of that money is guaranteed. So, like, I don't have to bend the knee for anything. <laughs> Why would I? Yeah. That is that is so true. Let's 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 bring it closer back to home. Um, you are people that that read you and and follow you on Twitter will know that you're a um, that when the Wolfpack first came to Toronto, you were very excited. Um, and uh, recently, there's been news about a free agent that they've signed. But but talk to us a little bit about you know why should Torontonians be excited? We've got tons of sports to follow, tons of athletes, lots of distractions. Why should we be excited about the Wolfpack? Interesting. Um, I know for me, so here's how I came to it. Yeah, uh, there's a couple tributaries you know that kind of converge into this one stream. So first was that like. Towards the end of the summer, like August 2015, I'm at the office at the Star, and the woman who was a sports editor back then, she now she's the head of uh, media relations for the Raptors, but she's our sports editor, Jennifer Quinn. She's like, "Hey Morgan, what is the uh, 
second biggest, sorry, the third biggest sports event in the world behind soccer World Cup and the Olympics. What's next biggest? And I was like, I don't know, probably Rugby World Cup. She's like, exactly. Wow. It's like, She's like, it starts in three weeks. Uh, I need you to do some stories about it because Canada's playing. So up until then, I didn't pay that much attention to rugby. Like, like everyone else, like I knew that New Zealand was good. And yeah. I, knew they, I knew that they did the haka, like the pregame ceremonial group uh, dance. Yeah. Um, and that was about it. That was what I knew, you know? Yeah. Um, so I started watching, so, you know, so I did a few stories leading up to the World Cup, and I watched like almost every game of the World Cup. And I haven't stopped watching since then. I just got into the habit. And so during the 2015 Rugby World Cup, I also got a call from a friend of mine named Adam Harris, who's like a boxing industry, like a fixer. And he knew a guy named Wright. And he's like, hey, I have a friend of mine that's getting ready to bring a rugby league team to Toronto. You want to talk to him? Like, sure. So he introduced me to a guy named Eric Perez. Um, And so Eric Perez, uh, his folks are from Venezuela, but he grew up here. He had lived in England for a while. He's working in the advertising agency. And then he discovered this sport called rugby league um, and fell in love with it. And he thought to himself, when I move back to Toronto, I got to find a way to bring a rugby league team with me. And so that was what he did. And so like this audacious idea was to just like create this rugby league team out of nowhere uh, start playing them in professional, like in the, the third division of England's rugby football league, like at the lowest division and having to work their way up, play, get promoted, get promoted till they got to super league. Um, and so yeah. what I learned really quickly is that like uh, rugby league and rugby union, like to us as North Americans, they're virtually the same thing because they're different from gridiron football, right? You have the big white ball. The guys yeah. don't wear pads. Yeah. And there you go. Uh, but to people that are into rugby, they're two very different things. And so, like, for me, I watch both. And I'm rugby code agnostic. But, like, hardcore rugby people think I'm nuts. They think I'm a weirdo because there are people that watch rugby league and watch rugby union. And they don't, a lot of them don't really overlap that much. And the other thing you learn is that because huh. the two sports each come with their own kind of cultural class baggage, right? Because co- oh. rugby, right? Because rugby league was born in like 1895 when a lot of the guys, like blue collar industrial workers from these cities in northern England, they split off from the union because the union had it was like the NCAA. They're like, we have strict rules about amateurism. You have to be an amateur to play this sport. But the guys from northern england who work in like in these factories and coal mines were like look all the time i spend playing the sport is time that i could be spending working i got bills to pay so <laughs> they slid off went professional sure. right and there it went but like this class conflict has persisted like even until now and this is where oh, sunny wow. bill williams come right so this is where the toronto wolfpack come in this is where sunny bill williams comes in uh, he's their big free agent signing from uh new zealand wow. so uh Long story short, what's exciting about them here in Toronto is that they were like this startup a few years ago, and they literally started at the bottom of England's professional rugby league structure and kind of worked their way up. And, and well, it's not like they were scrappy underdogs. Like they had a, you know, a deep-pocketed owner who signed all these like top-flight professional players, and in the third division you're playing against guys that are like the first guys that played rugby league. They have full-time jobs and play when they can. And so imagine uh, – 
imagine like a team full of NFL players playing against like guys with full-time jobs who play in their spare time. So that was the first couple of years of the Wolf back in Toronto. But now they've qualified for Super League. So whatever is the highest level of English rugby league, like what is their version of the NFL or CFL, like that's what we're going to see here in Toronto. Um, and I don't know, like Major League Soccer, and this is no offense to Toronto FC, but it's just that it's not like the Toronto FC can play their way into the EPL or play their way into the Bundesliga, right, and have Bayern Munich come over here and play. But the Toronto Wolfpack, that's what you have. Um, and then the other thing they did this offseason is that they managed to sign a guy named Sonny Bill Williams, who, like, if you're into rugby, you know who Sonny Bill Williams is, which is, like, the kind of the point, which is why they signed him, because they want him to be, to their sport and their league, what, like, David Beckham was to Major League Soccer, what LeBron James has been uh, to the NBA, because he's this guy. Yes, so the thing about Sonny Bill Williams, like, as I, as I mentioned before, like, there's there's some tension, you know, between like the rugby league community and the rugby union community, and like the sports are similar, but they're very similar, common ancestor. But you know, these two communities a lot of times view each other kind of skeptically, um, and so you don't have a lot. You don't have very many players that switch from one version to the other. Hmm. I think there are more people doing it now because both versions now are like they're paying, but. Uh, you don't have a lot of people doing it, but like Sonny Bill has done it his whole career. And that's what's kind of made him controversial even, you know, in New Zealand, in Australia, in England, in places where people really care about either or both versions of, of, of rugby. So here's this guy that's played professional rugby league, was a standout, played yeah. professional rugby union, played with New Zealand All Blacks, like the best team out there, won two World Cups. Yeah. Um, and so his contract with New Zealand's rugby union uh, ran through this year's World Cup. And so at the beginning of this year, the Toronto Wolfpack started calling his people saying, hey, well, what's Sonny Bill got planned after, um, after the World Cup? Do you think he'd want to come play in Toronto? And it was such a long shot. I remember running into some, some executives from the Wolfpack, like just down in Liberty Village at a coffee shop at Balzac's, yeah. right? <laughs> right on East Liberty there. And they were telling us that this is what they wanted to do. I was, I was like, yeah, you guys probably got a 5% chance. And even these guys were like, yeah, yeah, probably, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah. And then after a while, you kind of stopped hearing about it. And then after the World Cup, here it comes again. And so basically, they offer Sonny Bill Williams somewhere north of $4 million a year for two years and also an ownership stake in the, in, in the team. Oh, wow. At which point, Sonny Bill says, you know what? I like a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go to Canada. But I will give – so this is – and so now, if you look at, like – Google, Google searches, like Google searches for the Toronto Wolfpack skyrocket. Yeah. Every time their name was mentioned alongside Sonny Bill Williams' name, especially when it became official that they were signing him, Google searches for Toronto Wolfpack skyrocketed, uh, especially in England and in New Zealand and in Australia. Um, and so what we're going to have here, like when Williams finally shows up, is like someone who... It's weird because it's tough to get like local people to care about a guy just because people elsewhere in the world care about him. But at the same time, like in the Southern Hemisphere. So we're going to be like to people in, in, in Australia, New Zealand, um, like a, 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 this is going to be like maybe the first time that Canada especially has been like a 
focal point of attention from elsewhere in the world. Right? You can have all these Aussies, all these Kiwis, like waking up at weird hours of the day to watch the Toronto Wolf to play. Right? <laughs> at Lamport yeah. Stadium on a Saturday afternoon. And so, and the thing about Williams, too, and this is the difference between him, you know, and a lot of the guys that the Wolfpack had been signing. Because what they, you know, the strategy when they were in the lower tiers of professional rugby league they, is they would sign old guys who used to be famous, old guys who used to be good in Australia or in England. So they still had kind of a following. Yeah. They were guys the team could afford because they weren't as good as they used to be. Sure. Um, Williams is 34, so he's getting up there, but he's still, like, in very good shape and still takes the sport very seriously. And even like in all of his, and, and so you don't get the sense from him that he's just kind of on this two year victory lap to get paid and go off into retirement. Like he's coming here to like to still play and show people what he can do, what put him on the map in the first place. Which, uh, and this is the big difference with a sport like rugby league. Um, if you sign like a really good soccer player to MLS, yeah but he wasn't like a striker, right? Hmm. Say he was a midfielder. Sure. He could be the best in, in the world, but like a mainstream sports audience that, in, that isn't into soccer like that wouldn't understand what he's doing. And so the soccer fans would be like, ooh, look how well he keeps his team organized. He keeps the ball moving, all this stuff. But like yeah. the mainstream sports fans are like, well, he's not scoring any goals. He's not any good. <laughs> but like in a sport like rugby league, you hit people. Yeah. Right, so the things that Sonny Bill Williams does, you don't have to be an expert to understand that he's doing them well. He's doing it well, yeah. Because when he smashes somebody, you'll know it. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Or like when he he gets the ball and it takes three people to tackle him, and he spots the the uh, a teammate and he offloads the ball to him and the guy's open because it took three people to slow down Sonny Bill Williams. Therefore, there's you know all kinds of running space. You will understand that. Like, that's not too difficult to understand. You don't have to be an expert at the sport to, to, to get that. So that's one of the differences between like rugby league and soccer is that the sport, it's different, but it's a lot less abstract than soccer can be uh, to North Americans. It's still just not that different from football, a lot of running, a lot of hitting, a lot more kicking. But like the things that make Sonny Bill Williams very good at this sport, you don't have to be an expert at the sport to understand them. Like when he hits a guy... You'll know. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Um, no, no more. I, I, I went to two games last year. I don't know if I'll be able to go again because I, I used to get free tickets. Yes, but I, I think with 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 Sonny joining the team, I think that's tickets are going to be scarce. Uh, in the in, in the new year. Yeah, well, this is what they'll benefit from too. Is that the the stadium only seats ten thousand people, right? Yeah. So what you're going to have, like, if they manage to promote this well. And I, and I think year to year they get better at promoting their product, too, um, as they learn more about this market um, and how to bridge the gap between, like, their hardcore fans and just the mainstream fans who might be interested. They get a, Every year they get a little bit better at marketing their product. And so they're going to have this opportunity where you're going to have, like, some sellouts. And, the, and, you know, sports teams, the only thing sports teams love better than, like, trying to fill a huge stadium He's having like a mid-sized stadium where they got to turn people away, right? And yeah. they have that uh, demand because that that scarcity creates demand, absolutely, um, and so or boosts demand or enhances demand. And so they, if they play this correctly and the team keeps winning, um, 
and Williams stays healthy, knock on wood, because he's 34 years old, and this sport is extremely violent. So you can't you can't take anyone's health as a given. True, but um, <laughs> yeah, they they're on the op- they they're on the precipice of a pretty big opportunity, and people in England too, where the, where their league is based. Um, again, because I mentioned so much of the sport, so much of the sport's popularity is concentrated in this one corridor of towns in northern England. Um, the rugby football league has been really, really keen on expanding its audience outside of this, uh, outside of the sports basically traditional homeland. So, like, they can go from here to Australia, and people love it in Australia. New Zealand people love it in New Zealand, but then like. In England, outside of Northern England, they have a tough time getting traction. But like a guy like Williams and a team like the Wolfpack uh, help with that tremendously. Because all the people in London who don't watch a ton of rugby league, but they watch a lot of rugby union, they all know who Sonny Bill Williams is. And so he can start to introduce the sport to people there. Um, And then from there, they're trying to colonize like New York, Boston, Ottawa, like that. But so much of this depends on Sonny Bill Williams' playing in Toronto, playing well, and, and Toronto's team performing well. Yeah. All goes, all goes hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, Morgan, listen, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time, but th- there is one question that I've – that once a week I said I need to ask Morgan why he tweets about this. Is, <laughs> he, is, is he being ironic or uh, is, he, is he a big fan? And, and once a week your Twitter feed – uh, just gets filled up with hashtag 90 day fiance. Yes. What is it with you in this? Okay, there's a couple things. One, because I've picked up like probably 50 new Twitter followers in the last day and a half. <laughs> and I don't know how far down my timeline they've gone, but I might have to start warning them ahead of time that I tweet about 90 day fiance. <laughs> uh, and I don't know how I started watching it. I just kind of got roped into it, and now I can't stop. It's the best show on television. <laughs> um, it's it's like a soap opera. Yeah. The thing is, so people tell me, oh, Morgan, it's all staged. They aren't really doing that. I'm, I'm like, I don't care. It's like as a kid, I grew up, I watched wrestling. Like, listen, sure. I knew that. Right. I knew that um, Rocky Johnson and, and Magnificent Morocco weren't really enemies. Right? Yeah. But still, I got into it. <laughs> this is the same thing. Um <laughs> I, and I don't quite know why this show has gripped me the way it has. It just has. You know, but for two hours a week, you get to kind of turn your brain off and have fun. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 and you know, 90% of the tweets are, like, negative. You're making fun of the people that are on there. But at the same time, yeah. the people that go on that show understand that that's what they're doing. And that is, yeah. that is the role they play, like, on the show but also in life. I'm going to volunteer... <laughs> and so uh and and it was most of the time like most of the couple because they well for people that don't and, and i take for granted that people know what the show's about. people might not know what the show's about so yeah. it's a show about americans people who aren't from the west yeah uh getting engaged getting married uh and using the k-1 visa as it means to do this so the k-1 visa says if I'm an American and I have this fiance, I bring her to the country on a K-1 visa. We have to get married within 90 days. Basically, as a way of ensuring that the two people are serious about being married and not just uh, engaging in a sham engagement to get someone into the country. But invariably, among the two couples, 
one of the couple, either the American or the non-American, like one of them is usually some type of hustler, right? So it's the non-American hustling a gullible American just to get into the country, or it's a gullible American pretending to have more money than they have, pretending to be smarter than they are or whatever, uh, in order to, 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 to seduce a partner that like it, on a level playing field they would never have a chance with. Yeah, and you're, always tra- you're always trying to figure out who's trying to hustle who. That's a big part of the show. <laughs> who's trying to hustle who? And it gives you two two hours a week where you're in heaven. Yes, although for the people that watch, and like for the well, more than two hours a week because you wind up following all these ninety day meme accounts and ninety day parody <laughs> accounts on Instagram. Yeah, and so it's more than two hours a week. Wow, that is awesome. Yes, Morgan, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, before we sign off, why don't you tell people where uh, they can read your articles and, and follow you as well? Okay. Well, you can find a lot of my work at thestar.com slash sports prism. Um, so that's where like my weekly sports prism stories go. Uh, a lot of the rugby league stuff that I write and a lot of the boxing stuff I write doesn't necessarily go there. But if you click on my byline, like any of my stories at the star, you just click on my name. It takes you to like – my author page, which runs down like everything else I've written, um, or at least everything else I've written recently that's published online. Uh, so you can do it that way. You can also find me uh, on Twitter at Morgan P. Campbell, um, Facebook.com slash Sports Prism. Those are probably the best ways to find me. Awesome. Morgan, again, thank you so much and have yourself a great day. Anytime, Kareem. <laughs>